I've told you the story in the past about this man in a particular church who thought he was God's watchdog for that church. Of course, he was not appointed to the position. It was a self-appointment, but he felt like it, it was his responsibility to oversee everything. He had to know about everything that was going on in the church. Well, one day, this man happened to be in the church building, and he opened a closet, and inside he saw five brand new brooms. He blew up. And he demanded to know who had authorized the purchase of five new brooms. So he went to one of the pastors for an answer. And this particular pastor responded, I I don't know why we have five new brooms, but, but goodness, don't fall out of fellowship over five new brooms. Well, later this particular pastor was having coffee with the church treasurer, and he relayed this incident to him. After the treasurer heard the story, he smiled, and he said, well, I know why he was so upset. He said, how would you like it if everything you had given to the Lord over the past year was spent on five new brooms? Well, believe it or not, there are those kinds of people, and there are those kinds of people in churches. And they can make life very difficult. It seems that just about every church has what is often called a church boss. Some churches even have several of them. These people may or may not be officially the church boss, but they certainly function that way. They want to control everything. They want to know about everything. They believe that an explanation has to be given to them about everything. They love being in charge, whether they have been assigned the responsibility or not. And many times they have not been assigned the responsibility. They have taken it on themselves. They love to have the preeminence. There is a book in the Bible that talks about a man like that. It might surprise you to hear. But that is the book that we want to consider in this study. And that little book is called Third John. In John's first letter, he describes fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. In his second letter, he denounces fellowship with false teachers, as we saw last week. In his third letter, written around A.D. 85 to 90, he he discusses fellowship with other believers. The overall purpose of this little letter called 3 John is to contrast the servant heart of a man named Gaius with the self-centered heart of a man named Diotrephes. Third John, interestingly, is the shortest letter in the Bible. But the message it contains is not little. It is huge. I find it interesting that the Apostle John wrote this letter contrasting the servant heart of Gaius and the self-centered heart of Diotrephes because, catch this, it is very likely that at one point in his life, John himself had the tendency to be like Diotrephes. Before John allowed the Lord to change him, John leaned toward or had tendencies toward being like Diotrephes. 
But by God's grace, John responded to the Lord's word and the Lord's work in his life. And John ended up becoming a man with a servant's heart. Let me show you this before we actually dig into the letter called 3 John. To give you an idea of the kind of person John was, turn with me to begin with to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. The second book of the New Testament, the second Gospel record. Mark, chapter 3. Mark, chapter 3. We're going to look at a few little snapshots on the early life of the Apostle John. One from each Gospel account to give us an idea of what this man was like when Jesus first called him. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain. He is a reference to Jesus. Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now here's the list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Notice that. Jesus gave James and John the nickname Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. What that tells us is that John was a fervent ambitious, aggressive, charged up kind of man. He was a thunderous man. When a lot of Christians think about the Apostle John, they picture a guy who is a weak, mild, sissy kind of man. You know, a a hippie sort of guy who, who went around saying, love one another, love one another. Listen, if that's the way you've pictured John, you've missed it. Yes, over and over again in 1 John, John does tell us to love one another. But that does not mean that he was a weak, mild, sissy kind of man. John was a son of thunder. Look at the next gospel record, the gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. Luke 9.51 tells us, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, again the him, a reference to Jesus, time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, specifically James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Lord, should we just burn them up? It's obvious that James and John did not have missionary hearts at this point in their lives. Let's just burn them up and be done with it. Jesus rebuked them for being hateful and intolerant. Verse 55, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. It's obvious from these two passages that we've looked at that John had a lot of zeal, but no sensitivity. Zeal is a good quality, but it has to be balanced with sensitivity. 
This gives us some insight into John's character, however. It gives us some insight into his personality. He was very aggressive and he was very ambitious. Another snapshot shows us this. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Matthew, chapter 20. Beginning in verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, now that would be James and John. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. It's clear as this passage unfolds that James and John were behind this request from their mother. We know that for three reasons. Number one, (coughs) the text tells us they came along with their mother. She didn't go to Jesus on her own. They came along. Implication, they even sort of put her up to this. Number two, notice that as we read further that the other ten disciples did not get angry at Mrs. Zebedee but at James and John. They knew who was behind this request. And then thirdly, most significantly, Jesus gave his reply to James and John, not their mother. Jesus knew who was behind this request. So we know that James and John were behind this request. And that shows us, again, that John was an ambitious man. But notice Jesus' response. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They, James and John, said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. They knew that James and John wanted those positions. Put their mother up to this. So Jesus decided at this point it's, it's time for a team meeting. He's got to pull the team together and say, You know what, guys? Your hearts are wrong. Your attitudes are wrong. So, verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Men, we're not going to do things that way. Not in my business. We're not going to do things that way. It's not going to be that way among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Once again, this passage points out the ambition of John. He was a goal-oriented man. He wanted to reach the top. He wanted to sit on the right hand or the left hand of authority in the kingdom. And the Lord told him that the way to the throne is the way of the cross. He wanted a crown, Jesus gave him a cup, a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted to rule. Jesus gave him persecution and suffering. The Lord Jesus took this thunderous 
ambitious, aggressive man named John and redirected his zeal towards servanthood and ministry. Jesus transformed John into the apostle of love. It's something to realize that when the Lord was passing out work near the end of his earthly stay, he told Peter, feed my sheep. But he told John, take care of my mother. That ought to show just how much Jesus trusted John. That passage where that took place is John 19. Turn over to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 19. And this will conclude our little snapshots of John's life early on. John 19, verse 25. This is, we're picking up the story in the middle of the crucifixion account. And John tells us in verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's a reference to John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now many, many people have mistakenly thought that Jesus was saying, Mom, look at me. Behold your son. Look at what I'm going through. That's not the idea at all behind this passage. If you read the next verse, it makes it clear. Verse 27, Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus was not saying, Look at me, Mom. He was referring to John. Behold your son. John is going to become, as it were, your son And, John, you treat my mom like she's your mom. Notice how John refers to himself here in verse 26. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. All the way through this gospel, he refers to himself this way. It's almost as if John could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him, so he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a statement of awe, amazement, wonder, humility. It's almost as if he's saying, can can you believe it? Jesus loves me. It's not that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, but John is the writer of this, this gospel account, and so he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus loves me. John was somewhere between the age of 20 and 23 when Jesus called him to be an apostle. Some scholars even place him younger, maybe late teen years. What a thrill it must have been for him at such a young age to follow Jesus around in the flesh for three years. And during that time, Jesus transformed his life. He became the apostle of love. Jesus changed John from a self-seeking man to a man with a servant's heart. And that is exactly what John contrasts in his third letter over near the end of the New Testament. So let's go over to 3 John. It's almost easier to find the book of Revelation and go backwards a few little letters, a couple little letters to 3 John. This completes our look at John's letters. We spent many weeks in 1 John, last Lord's Day, in 2 John, and then we conclude John's letters here with 3 John. He also wrote the Gospel of John and was the writer of the book of Revelation, which we've already looked at in years past. 3 John. Notice how he opens 
this letter. The elder, by the way, that's even a statement of humility. He could have said, John, the apostle, the one who walked with Jesus for three years, the one who put his head on Jesus' chest and all of the things that John had the privilege of experiencing, but he just says the elder, the shepherd, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. As we saw in our previous study of John's second letter, he was a man who cherished the truth of God. Yes, he was the apostle of love, but it wasn't the kind of love that sacrificed or set aside God's truth. That comes through again in this opening verse. John loved this man, Gaius. He refers to him, depending on your translation, as my dear friend or the beloved Gaius. And when he expresses his love, he says, whom I love in truth. I know I said this kind of thing several times last week in the message on Second John, but it needs to be said again. Biblical love is not naive. Biblical love is not merely sentimental. Biblical love is discerning. Biblical love is coupled with truth. The Apostle John modeled that beautifully. He was a man who loved fervently, and he loved deeply. He loved profoundly. He loved passionately. But he was also a man who was committed to God's truth. May God grant us the ability to live out that same kind of biblical balance in our lives. In verse 2, he says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Because John truly loved Gaius, he wanted him to enjoy good physical health. He knew that Gaius was spiritually healthy, so his prayer was that the physical health of Gaius would match his spiritual health. Isn't that a neat thought? John knew that the most important issues in life are spiritual. He knew that the most important thing in life is spiritual well-being or eternal well-being. But he did not ignore the temporal well-being of people. Because he loved Gaius so much, he was genuinely concerned about his physical health. You see, it's okay to be concerned about physical health, if the spiritual condition is healthy. But what so often happens is that people pay far more attention to their physical health than they do to their spiritual health. Gaius didn't do that. He was spiritually healthy. He had a healthy soul. And John prayed that God would graciously grant that his physical health would match his spiritual health. How did John know that Gaius was spiritually healthy? Notice verse 3. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. Gaius was spiritually healthy because God's truth was in him and he was walking in God's truth. He was taking God's truth into his heart, into his mind, into his soul, into his life, and then he was living it out in his own life experience. Beloved, that's the way to live life. 
we need to continually take God's truth into our hearts, into our minds, but it doesn't stop there. We need to apply truth so that we live it out in our daily lives. That's spiritual health. By the way, do you regularly take in God's truth? To answer that question, let me ask you another question. When was the last time you took some of God's truth into your life besides today? Was the last time last Sunday? What about the last time before that? Was it the previous Sunday? That's not continually taking in God's truth. And if that's the way you approach your Christian life, you're not going to be spiritually healthy. Gaius had the truth in him. He took in God's truth. He memorized God's truth and he hid it in his heart. And then he lived it out in his life. That's spiritual health. And that is a thrilling thing to see in someone's life or hear about in someone's life for any true spiritual shepherd. So John adds, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. If you are a committed Christian parent, then you can relate to what John says here. If you are a man of God or a woman of God with a heart for God's people, then you can relate to what John says here. There is nothing that gives greater joy than to hear that people dear to us are walking in God's truth. When John uses the phrase, my children, here in verse 4, he is probably referring to people he had led to Christ, or at least people he had shepherded in his pastoral ministry. They were his spiritual children. And he says here in verse 4 that it, it thrilled his heart to hear that they were walking in the truth. Gaius was evidently one of them. So in the next few verses, John commends Gaius for the way he modeled God's truth in his life. Notice this commendation. Verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. John is referring to the fact that Gaius had aided and had helped out people in genuine need. And he is probably referring specifically to traveling evangelists and teachers. As I mentioned last week in our study of 2 John, traveling evangelists and teachers were dependent on men like Gaius for shelter and for sustenance. There weren't motel accommodations in many, if any, of the towns in the first century. You had to go few and far between to find anything like a motel or any type of residence. People who traveled had to stay with people they knew. So Christians who were traveling around to minister to people needed help from believers in towns and villages along the way as they traveled. Gaius was one who helped. He demonstrated love. He demonstrated hospitality to those who genuinely needed it. And so John commends him for that. He says in verse 6, the, of these people that, to whom Gaius ministered, who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. And that is exactly what Gaius had done. 
And John knew what his motive was for doing those things. Gaius did what he did because, first of all, he loved the Lord. Secondly, he loved the Lord's work. Thirdly, he loved the Lord's servants. And fourthly, he loved the lost. And people could clearly see that in his life. That's what John is saying here in this verse. People could clearly see that in his life. This is a good time for a question of of assessment for our own lives. Can people see that in our lives? Can people see that in your life? Your love for the Lord, love for the Lord's work, love for the Lord's servants, love for the lost. You see, the Holy Spirit has placed this commendation of Gaius in the pages of Holy Scripture as an example for our own lives. This isn't just supposed to be history for us, uh, some history lesson about a man named Gaius. This is supposed to be applicational. Are we like this? That's the question this should force us to ask. Are we like this? We should be. Gaius helped the servants of Christ who were doing the work of Christ. And in verse 7, John says, Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. These traveling evangelists and teachers who are going out for the Lord's name's sake declined to receive money from unbelievers because they didn't want it to come across like they were selling the gospel. And that's a valid concern. Therefore, John is saying it is right that the people of God support their work because it is right that the people of God support the work of God. And so he says in verse 8, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I love that expression. Fellow workers for the truth. You see, when we financially or tangibly support those who are doing the work of Christ, we become fellow workers for the truth. We become partners in the work of God's ministry for the truth. Beloved, no one can do God's work on his own. No one. It always takes a network of people. This was even true in Paul's life. That is why, at the end of his letters, he often commended people who had supported him and helped him. You know, those parts of the letters that you and I usually skip because we get to the end, we can't pronounce the names anyway, so we just close the Bible. We think we're done. Well, those are important people. Paul lists them there at the end of his letters. The Holy Spirit puts them there because they, those were people who supported Paul and helped him. Ministry is a teamwork endeavor. And Gaius was a part of the team. That's what John is saying. Gaius, I commend you for being a part of the team. Again, I ask you, are you a part of the team? Are you involved in the work of God one way or another in in some way? Are, Are you a team player? Unfortunately, some Christians are not. John mentions an example in the next verse. Verse 9. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. One of the saddest aspects of being a pastor is having to deal with people like this. One of the most difficult aspects of being a pastor is having to deal with people like this. Ironically, but not surprisingly, just this week in preparing for this message, uh, I heard about 
a young man who had prepared for pastoral ministry, did all the schooling, the work, the preparation. He and his young wife went into pastoral ministry. This particular church that they were involved in had one or two, I think a couple people like this, like Diotrephes. And it was so disheartening, so discouraging that after a couple years, the man left the ministry, didn't walk away from the Lord, still loved the Lord, served the Lord, but, but uh, left pastoral ministry for the rest of his life because it was just too difficult to have to deal with uh, someone like this. You see, Diotrephes is not the last person who could be described as one who loves to have the preeminence, the one who is going to be the boss, the one who is going to, to tell how things have to go in the church. Through the years, I've had some experiences in this area that you probably would not believe. I remember one year we had a gentleman on the board, this goes back a number of years, who volunteered to be on the nominating committee. And when he came to the nominating committee meeting, he nominated himself to be an elder. Those of us on the nominating committee didn't know what to do. We were speechless. I, I can still remember the experiences of it were yesterday, sitting in my office, and we all just looked at each other speechless. We knew it wouldn't be right to accept that nomination because no one in the congregation had expressed that desire to anyone on the nominating committee, and no one on the nominating committee had made the recommendation either. But you talk about an awkward situation. That was a dandy. There was another time, a number of years back, when there was an elder on the board who, who literally, I, I'm not speaking here metaphorically, literally wanted to set the agenda for every meeting, and he wanted to do all the talking about all the items he put on the agenda. And I beloved, I'm not exaggerating. In an hour-long discussion about a matter or an issue, he would talk over 45 minutes of the hour. As chairman of the elder board, I finally felt like I had to say something to him as gently as possible. And when I did, he resigned from the elder board. But he found other ways to be in the spotlight. Those kinds of situations grieve you deeply as a pastor. They hurt, and they are difficult to deal with, but they aren't new. The beloved Apostle John even had to deal with situations like this, and when he wrote this particular letter, the problem person was named Diotrephes. By the way, isn't it amazing that John actually mentions his name? He actually gives his name. Some Christians would think that is unloving or inappropriate or unnecessary. Evidently, the Holy Spirit doesn't think so. The Holy Spirit inspired this letter. This is an inspired letter of Scripture. The Holy Spirit guided John in what was written, and John even went so far as to state this man's name. And he not only gave his name, John even described what he was like. He says, Diotrephes was one who loves to have the preeminence. He loves to be up front. He loves to be in control. He loves to, to be in the spotlight. He loves to be the top dog. He loves to be given titles. He loves to be in leadership. That was Diotrephes. This brings up an important point that we need to pause to clarify at this, at this moment in the message. And here is the clarification. It is okay, it is okay 
to want to serve the Lord and to serve people by being in spiritual leadership. That's okay. In fact, if the attitude is right, it's actually a good thing. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of an overseer, he desires a good thing. So it's good to want to shepherd God's people. If the attitude is right, if the motive is right. Frankly, I wish more men and women wanted to shepherd God's people and share in the responsibility of shepherding God's people. But listen, there is a fine line between the right kind of desire and the wrong kind of motive. A very fine line. For example, there are men who want the position, but they don't want the work. In other words, they, they want the title of whatever it happens to be, pastor or elder or deacon or whatever the title is. They want the title, but they don't want the responsibility of actually shepherding people. And there are some who are even willing to do the work, but they don't do it with humility. And they don't do it out of love for Christ. They don't do it out of love for people. They do it because they want to be liked on a human level, or they want to be approved, or they want to be accepted by people, or popular with people, or maybe they want to be looked up to by people. Worse yet, there are some who want a position because they want to have the preeminence, like Diotrephes. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything when I say that the, the flesh, that part of us that Scripture talks about, the flesh is alive and well, even in the church. The flesh is alive and well, even among leaders in churches. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So there are those who, like Diotrephes, want to have the preeminence. It's obvious that John was not pleased with this man. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. John was the apostle of love, but he didn't compromise or back away from something that needed to be dealt with. And he's basically saying here in verse 10, if I come, and this is still going on, I will deal with it. This has to be dealt with. He was saying he would deal with this situation involving Diotrephes. Diotrephes did everything he could to force his will onto others, and John knew that had to stop. Tragically, Diotrephes wasn't the last church boss, church controller, church dictator, whatever term you want to use. He wasn't the last to behave like this. The Lord knew that there would be men like this down through the centuries in a variety of churches. So the Holy Spirit has left these words as a warning and as instruction for us. Verse 11, John says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. In other words, he is saying, Gaius, 
don't copy the behavior or the attitude of Diotrephes. And, and, and broader even, John may have been writing this, knowing the church would read it. And so he's saying not just to Gaius, but to all the believers who would hear this, don't copy the behavior of Diotrephes. Don't copy his attitude. Avoid his behavior. Don't be like him. You know, one of the hardest lessons to learn in the Christian life is that there are people in the church to imitate, and sadly, there are people in the church that you shouldn't imitate. Some young Christians don't realize that, and they get hurt along the way, or they get confused along the way. They, they get misled along the way. They, they assume that, well, if someone's in the church... You know, they're a part of the church, and they've been in the church for a while. Well, then they're worthy of emulation. You, you should be able to copy their behavior and imitate them. No, no. There are people in the church who are to be imitated, and there are people in the church who are not to be imitated. Diotrephes was not to be imitated. His unloving example was not to be imitated. John encouraged Gaius to continue to show love and hospitality to fellow believers who were serving the Lord. And he mentions a specific example in the next verse, verse 12. He says, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. You see, Demetrius, we can gather from this statement, was going to be traveling through the area. So John is writing in advance this letter of commendation. And he's going to be traveling through. So John was basically encouraging Gaius to aid him and to help him because he is basically saying, listen, he is a true servant of the Lord. He's genuine. He's valid. You can ha help him. You don't have to worry that you're helping out a fake or a phony. Help him. That would be the right thing to do. That would be the good thing to do. This was a very important issue for John to, to address. It was not only important to encourage Gaius to continue helping those who were serving Christ, it was also important to encourage Gaius not to give in to the pressure to conform to what was coming from this church controller named Diotrephes. And beloved, that's an important lesson for us to learn. In fact, it is so important so important that although John could have written about a lot of other things in this brief letter, he chose to write about this one thing. He says in verse 13, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. In other words, there was a lot on my heart when I sat down to write this letter. A lot of things in my mind. John could have written about a lot of other important things, but he chose to write about this one thing because it is so important. This is how important it is. And in fact, it's so important that the Holy Spirit of God made sure to guide John's writing and to preserve this book, this letter for us in Holy Scripture. That's how important it is. So he says in conclusion in verse 14, But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. In other words, other matters could wait until John and Gaius got together face to face. They would talk about many things, but this matter needed to be addressed immediately. That's how important it was and is. You know, the more I study the Word of God, the more I am amazed at how relevant it is. 
I mean, think about it. This, this was a situation that took place almost 2,000 years ago, but it is relevant to us today. It, it's, it's applicable. It happens today in churches all around the world. So I ask you as we close this morning, which one of these men are you like? Are you like Gaius, who was a co-laborer in the work of Christ? Or are you like Diotrephes, who hindered the work of Christ by being overbearing, by being dictatorial, by being self-seeking? Ask yourself that question. Again, I tell you, beloved, God has preserved this for us, not as a history lesson. He has preserved this for us so that as we look at it, as we reflect upon it, and we think about it, we, we sort of put a mirror up and say, you know, wh- where do I fit in this? What am I like? If the Lord were to write a letter today and put our names in there, like Brian, Tom, Bill, you know, how would he describe us? That's the kind of question that this letter should force us to ask. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head this morning, close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement around you. Think about this contrast. Gaius, humble, servant of the Lord. Diotrephes, proud, self-seeking. Which characterizes your life? And I would say this, if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're without Christ, then you need to realize that Scripture repeatedly says that the only way you can be right with God is to humble yourself, to become like a child, to have simple childlike faith. But part of childlike faith is humility. It's not self-seeking. It's not self-promotion. It's humility. What Gaius had, what Diotrephes did not have, humility. So if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I urge you to humble yourself before him. Humble yourself this very moment. And in humility, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive your sin, to cleanse you, and to make you the kind of man or woman he wants you to be. One who is humble. One who seeks to serve one who thinks of others, not one who promotes self. But I remind you, if you're a Christian, that it's not an automatic guarantee that, that these negative traits won't be in your life or in mine. There's no guarantee there. The flesh is still alive and well in us as believers. doesn't matter how long we've known the Lord. doesn't matter what our position is, what our title is. doesn't matter. It's still a daily walk with Christ. That's why Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily. That means you die to yourself every day. It's not just once and for all and it's done. It's every single day. So if you're a child of God, see if you have been taking up your cross daily. That is dying to self daily. That's the application the Spirit of God would want us to draw from what we've seen this morning. Father, thank you for the relevance of your word. It's, a, it's amazing how, how even though it was written so long ago, it speaks to the human heart today just as clearly 
just as relevantly as it did when it was written. And we have seen this morning from this brief letter, 3 John, we have heard, we have been confronted with our own natural tendencies, tendencies that all of us must face and fight because that's just the nature of our hearts left to ourselves apart from your grace. And so we want to pray for anyone here this morning who does not know your son Jesus Christ. May he or she humble himself or herself this very moment and receive him by faith. And for those of us who do know him, may we walk with him in humility, dying to self daily. May we be like Gaius, not Diotrephes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.